Let's take this outside with Marianne Iveson, the podcast where she speaks to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about why they connect with nature. Shortly after completing her PhD in ecology at the University of Calgary, Dr. Hillary Young was thrilled to find work at the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative, or Y2Y, that blends her passion for the beautiful Rocky Mountains with her background in ecology and conservation biology. Now, as Alberta Program Director for Y2Y, Hillary and her team work with governments and dozens of partners to protect key wildlife habitats along the western margin of the province. Hillary and her family spend much of their free time hiking, cycling, skiing, and breathing deeply in the mountains. Please welcome Hillary Young. Hillary Young, thank you so much for joining me on Let's Take This Outside. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Your background is in ecology and conservation biology, much like another guest of mine, Arianne Canton, with your PhD in ecology at the University of Calgary. Did I get that right? That's right. Yep. You're now the Alberta Program Director for Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative. But can you tell me where your love of nature and conservation started? Well, that's a great question. (laughs) It's loaded, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think I can answer that one pretty clearly. And I, I think it's no different for me than it is for a lot of people in that it started in childhood. And it started because my family and my parents had a really clear love of nature, took us outside all the time. And when I think back, you know, their parents took them outside. And I'm sure that it was sort of passed on through the generations, this love. I grew up in Ontario. I grew up in Pickering, town with a nuclear power plant. (laughs) And we had a cottage (laughs) in the North Corthas. And in fact, we still have it. It's a family cottage. And because my parents were teachers, we spent entire summers out there through my childhood. So six to eight weeks of um, unstructured playtime, whether it was climbing trees or jumping into the lake, um, spending all day in the lake, catching frogs in the local frog pond. You know, we were just sort of doing our thing in nature all day, every day. And I'm pretty sure that is sort of at the root of the love that I developed and the desire of ultimately to study it and then protect it. That's really funny that you say that. I was at a cottage last weekend with some girlfriends named Bob Cajun. Is that close? Not close, but I know the area. Yeah. But kind of it's a similar landscape with the lakes and like the rolling hills. And it's one of those things where you look and you're like, if I was to live somewhere else in Ontario, it'd be kind of in this area that has all of it, right? Oh, absolutely. Lakes everywhere and the trees. And I feel like there's this really great cottage culture out there too, where it's very much about spending your time outside. You now live in one of my favorite places in Canada, Canmore, in Alberta. How did you make it out there? And would you agree that it's maybe one of the most beautiful places in our country? (laughs) I'm a little biased because my sister lived there. That's how we know each other. When I was in, let's see, I was 19 when I moved to BC and I went to UBC for my undergrad. And I think that move kept me West. You know, I started recognizing the beauty of the West and really had a hard time wrapping my head around returning to Ontario. And after my five or six years in Vancouver, I moved to Calgary for my master's. And that was really what sort of solidified my stay out here. I met my partner in Calgary and we agreed that we wanted to live closer to nature than Calgary itself. You know, one of Calgary's biggest assets is that it's like an hour from the mountains. We were like, why don't we live in the mountains? It's not that far. It's There's some opportunities for us. And in fact, there were because um, a yoga studio in Canmore came up for sale. And my partner owned a yoga studio in Calgary, was looking for a shift and a change. I was a yoga teacher at the time. I'm doing a little less of that now. But the opportunity was there. And so we sort of picked up our bags and moved to Canmore about 10 years ago. 
And I have to say that was the right time for us to do it. The, the town is just growing and uh, it's becoming less affordable, to be perfectly honest. So I'm glad we got in then uh, because it's it's really become a little bit less affordable since then. But to your question of, is it the most beautiful place in Canada? I mean, I am so thrilled and honored and grateful to live here because of the beauty that we have uh, surrounding us, like these mountains with sometimes, you know, snow through through the year, all of these beautiful balsam fir and white spruce and the river that's running right through the valley, which is the Bow River uh, that feeds into Calgary and beyond. Like it's really paradise for us and we don't forget it. You know, I think it's really important to remember that every day. We're definitely going to talk about Yellowstone to, to Yukon and more about conservation. But, you know, the fact that you live in Camor and again, it's, you know, part of my heart is there. So I just love talking about it. But even, you know, I've been visiting my when my sister lived there for years, almost once a year. And to see how, like you said, going back to how much it's grown and exploded over the last few years. Yes, it's great for the economy and great for tourists. But that person inside you that loves nature so much, I'm sure it's also hard to see people maybe not respecting nature as much, or maybe more people coming who who aren't educated enough about respecting nature, right? Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, the Bow Valley is is literally one of the most populated mountain towns that still retains a grizzly bear population. And so we are never sure when those scales are going to tip and there will be too many people here to allow grizzly bears to either move through the valley or be supported by the habitat in the valley. We don't really know where that tipping point is. And that's one of the things that we do actually at our conservation organization is talk and inform people about the incredible value this valley has for wildlife habitat in particular, but also for connectivity through this whole Yellowstone to Yukon region, which, you know, it's 3,400 kilometers from Yellowstone National Park in the south up to the Yukon and just sort of the Arctic Circle, basically in the north. Bow Valley is sort of this pinch point in that whole region. And as we develop, we're developing slowly up the sides of the valley and we're leaving less and less habitat for wildlife to either live in or move through. And I think that that context can be lost sometimes because it's such an awesome place to recreate and, you know, and to live and to just like look at viewscapes and people forget sometimes that it plays a larger function. I was going to make a terrible joke when you said about the scales tipping about, I'm like, oh, is there going to be more grizzly bears and humans? <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that sounds terrifying, but or it's, it's their home. So I guess, <laughs> please, let's start with like, what is Yellowstone to Yukon? You've explained it a little bit already, but what exactly do you do? Because it's really beautiful work. Thank you. Yeah, well, the work we do here is to protect nature and habitat so that people and wildlife can thrive. And so it's really about making these connections through areas where connectivity might be lost. So there might be protected areas, but there may not be connections between them, which then means that populations can become isolated in these protected areas. And then through some you know, inbreeding, the genetics don't become as strong and those populations can wink out. So we're trying to maintain connections between habitats and populations in order to keep uh, different populations of wildlife thriving. And so largely our work is focused on wide-ranging mammals like uh, grizzly bears, which we use as an umbrella species. And an umbrella species means that when you protect the habitat that a grizzly bear needs, because it requires such a huge area, you're also then protecting the habitat that a number of species that are smaller than the grizzly bear need as well. So it's sort of a way to economically do conservation when you're, you're choosing one animal and you're saying, OK, we know that by focusing on this, we'll also get a lot of other gains um, by doing this. 
And so the work we do sometimes is about restoring connections, as I mentioned, across roads. So doing overpasses and underpasses under major highways. Sometimes it's about restoring private lands that may have been degraded over time, but they're key connections between other habitats. Sometimes it's about protecting new areas that don't have very much human use in them yet. And so it's sort of getting to them while uh, they're still fairly intact and making sure that those values are maintained over time. So lots of different ways to do this work. I was going to ask you what animals specifically need protecting. You mentioned grizzly bears, but what other animals can you mention that like the general population might not know about that are going extinct or are losing their population or really threatened right now? Is there certain deer or moose or? Yeah, I mean, the few that we're focusing on and and we have to really kind of keep our focus because the challenge with conservation is that there are so many ways you can expend your energy. And so we tend to focus on a few key species and key places, but Caribou for us are a large one, especially in BC and in uh, sort of northern Alberta. We focus too on um, wolverine. So wolverine require a lot of habitat, like huge swaths of habitat. And most of that is in the winter needs to be fairly undisturbed. And so some of the findings are showing that heli skiing and cat skiing and some of the ways that people are now getting into the backcountry and people are doing that more and more, which is awesome. And, you know, to get people to make that connection with nature. But the flip side, of course, is that it's disturbing uh, habitat for wolverine. And so starting to deal with some of those recreation challenges on wolverine, which are really sensitive, you know, they, they won't move. The research shows that they won't travel if there are people around or if there are disturbances nearby, it'll really disrupt their movement patterns. What does a wolverine look like? Oh, man. (laughs) They're like large, scary weasels. And uh, by scary, you know, they are certainly not like wolverine the cartoon or, (laughs) but they're predators. And they, you know, one of the ways that people take pictures of them and snag hair to understand where they've been is by hanging beaver carcasses from trees. Oh, my gosh. You see these wolverine jumping up from the bottom and attacking the beaver carcass. And they're, they're pretty fierce predators, but they're, they're meso carnivores. So they're not, as large, obviously, as um, like a grizzly bear, but they're bigger than, yeah, like a fisher or a small, small weasel. You know, what's funny is I guess I just never thought about, you know, when you're hiking there, when you're spending time there, I guess I never think about, I'd love to see a wolverine, right? Like I, that's never <laughs> actually crossed my mind. Do they hide a lot? Oh, I, I think I know one or two people who've ever seen a wolverine. Oh, it's really? So, it's so rare because they're, they avoid people pretty strongly. My, I guess my only claim to fame is that I saw a wolverine track <laughs> in the snow. claim to fame. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know that they're a wolverine track, though, because you see five really distinct fingerprints, I guess, in the snow. And so that's actually pretty clear when you do see one, and then you can photograph it, and everyone's like, wow, wolverine track. And in my world, it's kind of a big deal. So it is a bit of a claim to fame. Okay, so if you ever see a wolverine in the wild, that means like you are yeah. like one in a million. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's incredibly rare. Sometimes I wonder what's wrong with that wolverine, you know, (laughs) like, it's interesting that it's allowing itself to be seen. It makes me wonder whether it, you know, when people do see wolverine, it it could indicate that they are not doing particularly well. Usually they should be hiding away. I'm guessing, you know, this summer that we're currently in, summer is the last few years and Alberta parks have been overwhelming, like we mentioned. But if you've ever spent any time there, you'll notice the highway crossings for wildlife, both the overpasses and the underpass. I I didn't know there was underpasses, by the way. I'd love to find out more about those. And you'll see them and they're beautiful and they have like the animals on them. But you work on those a lot, right? We do. Exactly. It's a big part of our work. Underpasses are 
one of those uh, structures that are fairly invisible because you, you really can't see them from the road. You have to know what you're looking for. And the function of these overpasses and underpasses is really to make sure that there is connectivity across, especially major highways in areas where it's important for grizzly bear connections in particular. And so in the Bow Valley, which is where Canmore is and where Banff is as well, in the summer, there are over 30,000 cars that come through the Trans-Canada Highway in a day. It's incredible. And everyone's heading to Canmore to Banff to recreate. And then at the end of the day, they're heading back. And so it's actually become a full genetic barrier for uh, grizzly bears. And research has shown that the genetics of bears on either side are, have shifted over time because that connection has been lost. What do you mean by that genetics? If you don't, sorry for interrupting, but no, not at all. It means that the the populations on either side are are more alike with each other than they are across the highway because the spreading of genes across the highway isn't happening in the same way anymore. Mm. So uh, over time, if that continued over a very long time, they could become distinct populations. But it's right now early indications of that genetic uh, change is is showing up in the in the research. And so Banff, uh, back in the mid to late 90s, implemented a series of overpasses and underpasses within the national park itself. And the research has shown that since they were implemented for all species as a whole, wildlife animal collisions have reduced by 80%, which is absolutely incredible. So successful. And for ungulates, um, so an ungulate is like a deer or an elk, it's 96%. So they've made um, a huge impact. Wildlife over time learns to use these overpasses. There's fencing that is also going along the road. So it's directing animals to the overpasses. You know, grizzly bears take about five years to learn how to use them. Sometimes elk start using them as they're being built. (laughs) They they just don't care. And so some of our work um, over the last few years has been about um, encouraging the Ministry of Transportation and others to start building these overpasses outside of the National Park because it's so clear that they work. I don't know if this is a stupid question or not, but like those fences are quite high. Has there ever been any elk or deer that has got over them? Because I'm like, they're they're so powerful. Like, so that's happened before, obviously. So elk and deer are much less likely to, to jump over these fences. They're really high. They've made them intentionally high enough that they're pretty much insurmountable by elk and deer, but grizzlies can climb them, black bears bears climb them. Lynx, as it turns out, this is incredible to me, they can actually squeeze their bodies through the holes in the fence. And so we've seen instances where the footprints of a lynx in the winter, in the snow, lead up to the fence. (laughs) They just start on the other side again. It's incredible. So wildlife can still move through these fences and there's still um, instances in which they, they get stuck on the wrong side of the fence Sometimes managers will come and try to deal with them. Sometimes they get hit by a car. So it's it's not infallible. Those numbers that you just threw out to me about the deer and the elk and the grizzly bears being able to to use these bridges. I could only imagine being, you know, a wild animal and trying to like figure that out that you're like, this is for me, like this yeah. bridge or this underpass, this thing underground, like this is meant for me. And then like there's a whole other world on the other side. I know that's a ridiculous thought, but like. No, I, you're exactly right. What they try to do with the overpasses, and you've probably seen this, Marianne, is that they're forested. So they, they planted trees, they've got rocks, they try to keep the habitat looking somewhat similar to what's on either side of it. The underpasses are a little less, it's a little bit more obviously fake in the sense that it's usually concrete on the bottom. Um, In some cases, it's actually a culvert. And so there's water running through the middle and the animals have to walk along either side of the water. So, but those are short. They can see the other side. 
I think it's enough of a short disturbance that they're willing to kind of make that risk and go all the way through. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Let's take this outside with Marianne Iveson. What other kind of projects do you work on other than the, you know, the overpasses and underpasses are amazing, but what other projects do you work on that, that you'd like to talk about that are making a big impact? Oh, that's a great question. Well, what I'll, I'll mention is that we are working right now to Alberta. You, you probably have a sense. The government in Alberta has not been particularly conservation friendly <laughs> over the last few years. <laughs> really? Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Yeah, interesting struggle that we've had with that. So I think this is actually a really cool sort of shift that we've made. And it's to focus more on the connection between nature and the economy than we ever have in the past. And really understanding that for um, this government in particular, the economic argument is such a strong one and needs to be in place for them to take any kind of action. So we've been working um, specifically in Southwest Alberta on really understanding and communicating that no, each is not at the expense of the other, the environment on one side and the economy on the other side. You can have, and you often do have, nature positive economies that actually, you know, benefit both together. We've been talking about the economic value of ecosystem services like water and pollination and carbon biosequestration in the soils. And we've been talking about the value of protected areas like having parks in areas that are adjacent to communities and how the research in coming out of the States shows that when you have a protected area beside a community, those communities, their GDP goes up over time. And it's because people are attracted to places like I am to Canmore, where there's nature and beauty and they can recreate and they can, you know, sort of have that healing effect of nature just outside of their home. So people sort of migrate to these communities adjacent to these parks and then ultimately the um, economics of those communities improve. I say that's crazy that you have to fight for that. But for those who spend time in nature, why is it so important to advocate for its protection? I love to talk about this on this podcast, but I love your very professional opinion on this. You know, one of the things that we've been working on pretty actively is to make sure that people who are connected to nature and they, they love going outside and they're all over Instagram and they're, you know, they've got in Kenmore, it's like this four peak challenge. People do four peaks in a day. You know, there's all of these sort of extreme ways to experience nature and to enjoy it. But at the same time, like you've got that love of that place. Let's work now on making sure that we retain what it is that we love. I mean, it's easy in Kenmore in the sense because people have already made that connection to nature. And it's not a big leap to say, OK, now we need to 
sort of work actively to help protect it. In other places, it's about sort of fostering that connection in the first place. And, you know, it shouldn't be preservationist anymore. And I think mostly conservation has moved away from that. It's not about keeping people out of a landscape and sort of protecting it as is. It's about making sure that people have some access to an area or a landscape so that they foster that love for it and then they help to protect it later. Like, let's say you're a really avid recreationalist and you're like, what can I do as an individual? <laughs> like, I think I was going to ask you that. Like, what, what are simple things? Whether you live in Canmore or BC or Pickering or Halifax or Saskatchewan, like no matter where you live, what are some easy things that you can do every time you go outside? It's such a good question. You know, the first thing, I think we can move beyond leave no trace. I think leave no trace is a really great place to start. So you're packing out everything that you pack in and you're making sure to stay on trails and, you know, be a sort of a good avid steward in that sense. But beyond that, I think that there is a lot of space for turning your individual action into collective action around the idea of being an individual who is, you know, invested in an area and doing everything you can as an individual is fabulous. We're talking leave no trace, but we're also talking about being informed before you go out making sure that you've looked at the trail reports, there's no grizzly bears in that area, um, having a sense of going to the right places at the right time really matters. But beyond that, we need to understand what the other values that those landscapes provide are, you know, whether it's water or habitat for a certain species at risk, or, you know, there's a number of different services that these landscapes provide, and making sure that we're not having an impact on those things. It's a really great example, I think, out here, there are a number of trails um, in Kananaskis country, for example, that cut through ecosystems that have taken you know, decades to generate, like rare plants and rare mosses and lichen. And there are trails that cut through them. And when we decide to take a detour off the trail, we might be actually affecting an ecosystem that's not going to regenerate for another 50 years. And so just understanding the impact that we have when we're out there, I think, really matters. Beyond sort of this individual impact, as I mentioned, there is so much power, I guess, in a lot of people getting together to make a difference at a bigger scale. And so that's like the systemic change that we need to start making. That might be advocating for more protected areas to your local government. It might be um, expressing how much you care about in, in Alberta anyway, grizzly bear recovery and how you want, we want resources that are put towards that recovery rather than, you know, additional resources for oil and gas extraction, for example. <laughs> Just <laughs> a simple, super simple ex example. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, I think it's really about talking to our governments about what we want. And I know sometimes that makes people uncomfortable to speak up and use our voices in that way, but it's really how we get bigger change. And we're at this point, you know, in Canadian history anyway, where it's really going to be about this next generation stepping up and making a big difference in order to fight climate change and biodiversity loss and some of the bigger environmental issues that we're facing. Being in conservation, by the way, this is just feeding my soul. So thank you so much. I love this. Being in conservation, do you find that you're more connected to nature yourself more than ever? I do. I do. I think that I, I look at my environment and wherever it is that I'm recreating a little differently through a different lens than I might have otherwise. Sometimes that lens is a harsh lens. You know, sometimes I have to actually work to find the joy again, sometimes in the Beauvalli in particular, when I'm with friends who don't spend a lot of time here who are like, look how gorgeous this is. I have to keep myself from saying, yeah, and it's slotted to be developed. <laughs> you know, like there is sometimes I have trouble enjoying what I see in front of me because of what I know 
uh, the threats are to this landscape right now. We spend a lot of time outside as a family, whether it's uh, in the Bow Valley or we just came back from Vancouver Island and we have the cottage in Ontario that we visit every summer. And so I think that when I'm there, I also think to myself, like, what challenges is this community experiencing and how can I help? And, you know, I've started to donate to um, the Kortha's Land Trust, <laughs> where the cottage is. And I've been donating to the Cumberland Community Forest out on the island because I know that these communities are also fighting to keep what it is that I love about those communities. And so I guess I have a different sort of wider lens on it now. And those are some simple actions you can take as well. So it could be, yeah, Canmore, for example, which I love, but I'm also thinking about Vancouver Island, which I love, or I know it's in the States, but like the Adirondacks in upstate New York, I absolutely love. And I tried to buy an Adirondack Mountain Club pass every year because I know it helps with education and right. So it's amazing where where your heart is. You also want to maybe put some of, you know, if you have those extra funds to be able to be like, I want to support this and make sure that it's taken care of, right? That's exactly it. Yeah. When people ask about simple actions, it's about writing letters and it's about donating. And it's about telling your friends and communicating to the people in your circle what it is that you love and how to protect it. I think like that sort of personal connection makes a really big impact as well. Well, I hope next time I come out, whenever that may be, we could all go for a hike at some point. Oh, I would love that. Yeah. Anytime. I, I will post all the links for Yellowstone to Yukon on the show notes and everything, but where can people find more information? Of course, this has been a great conversation, but if people need some resources or some links, where can they find them? Well, they can definitely go to y2y.net and it's it's the number two. That's our website and it's it's sort of this house for a number of different projects that we're working on and sort of how we work as well. You know, I think you probably have listeners across the nation which is awesome. And I'm sure that it's in some cases, it's just a matter of checking out, doing enough research. It might only take you 15 minutes to find out what the local issues in your area are and how you might support them. That awareness goes a really long way. We talked a little bit about how, you know, individuals could act when they're actually outside. And sometimes it's also about, you know, making sure that you've got the right equipment with you and you've got hand words, bear spray and tourists here are often, you know, flat straight in the middle of bear country with no knowledge of how they would deal with bears or, you know, no bear spray on them. And those are always the instances where the bear ends up losing in those cases. You know, if there's ever an interaction, the bear is the one that sort of comes out for it. So, yeah, sorry. I think I've kind of got off track of your No, no, I love it. Um, I, it, reminds me, it reminds me. I think it might have been, was it Yellowstone National Park? I don't remember which park it was in the States, but they posted this like that said, reminder not to put bear spray on yourself oh my god <laughs> have you seen that no i can't believe i had to say that i think people were like using it as, as like mosquito repellent <laughs> Dude. It was, so it wasn't a tongue-in-cheek it was serious? i think it was tongue-in-cheek but also it was because people were doing it <laughs> I can't believe that. your eyes would be stinging for days i know <laughs> Hillary Young, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. And now I know exactly who to go to when it comes to talking about conservation and mountains. You're going to be my go-to person for this podcast. I hope that's okay. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And thank you so much for having me on. It was so great to talk to you today. Thanks for listening. For more Let's Take This Outside, go to letstakethisoutside.ca. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. 
And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.